Well, good morning again, and uh, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, and we're going to begin our time uh, by reading Mark 6 and verses 1 to 6. So Mark 6, verses 1 to 6, and the word of God says this. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Lord, may you, by your spirit, enable us to understand your word this morning. May you apply it to our hearts. May we be encouraged and challenged by it. For your glory, for our good. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, this passage sets us up for what we're going to read throughout the whole of chapter 6 of Mark's Gospel. He tells us that Jesus is a prophet. In fact, Jesus describes himself that way. And his mighty works show us that Jesus is the greatest prophet. He's actually the prophet that Moses prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18, the prophet who would be greater than Moses. Jesus' deeds in this passage and all that we've read so far in Mark's Gospel make it clear that he is indeed that prophet. But as the prophet, Jesus faced rejection and that should give us uh, pause for thought as well. For if the master is persecuted, why should we as servants think that we're going to avoid such suffering for the Gospel ourselves? The account of the earthly demise of John the Baptist speaks loudly to that truth which we'll read about a bit later in this chapter. Yet this is no cause for fear. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus declared to the disciples, in the world you will have tribulation. That's a promise. But take heart, I have overcome the world. If this world was all there is, then certainly we would have reason to do all we could to preserve our lives from suffering for the gospel. But that's not the case, is it? So we do well to have our eyes focused on eternity. And that enables us to think of all that comes our way as but light and momentary troubles. Now that doesn't take away anything from the pain and the heartache that we might face. Some of us to greater degrees than others. But we are able to endure because in light of eternity in the kingdom of God, this life is not so much as a blink of the eye. But the main thrust of our passage today is the power of unbelief. From Mark 3, verse 20, 
all the way to the beginning of chapter 6, where we find ourselves today. We're looking at a a time frame of a, a couple of days in the ministry of Jesus. And there is an important connection that ties all this together because in Mark chapter 3, Jesus' family uh, come up to Capernaum to try and bring Jesus home because they think that he's lost his mind. Only a few days later, Jesus returns home on his own accord. Do you remember what Jesus said when his family came to him? He looked and said at his disciples, gathered before him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It matters little about physical connection. What matters is spiritual connection. Do you have faith in Jesus as Lord and Saviour? If so, then you've been made part of his family. If you don't, then even if you are one of his half-brothers or half-sisters, then you have no hope and there's no salvation. Many people claim association with Jesus. They may go to church. They may even serve in ministries in various ways, giving of their time and effort. But the reality is, unless you're united to Christ in faith, unless there's repentance of sin and submission to his lordship, then the claim to be part of Jesus' true family is just as hopeless as it was for Jesus' earthly family. But in going back to his hometown, we see Jesus' heart for the people. It mattered to Jesus that those whom he'd grown up with did not believe him. And he went back to preach the gospel that they might receive him and be saved. Yet this is the power of unbelief. It's the power of the sinful heart. Unless grace is at work first, it will never turn to Christ. And sometimes those who should know best are the ones who have set their hearts in even greater opposition to Jesus. At the end of chapter 5, we have seen some wonderful displays of faith. And yet here in chapter 6, we see a powerful display of unbelief. We shouldn't be surprised by that. In fact, Mark has already prepared us for that and recording Jesus' teaching on the parable of the soils. Nazareth is the hard soil that will not allow the scattered seed to penetrate the surface. And looking through this passage today, it's important that we feel the power of unbelief. This passage reveals the shallowness of the human heart, the desire to turn anything into an excuse for not trusting in Christ. And if that's you, I pray you feel the weight of that. I pray you see the failure of these people that Jesus was speaking to and allow their mistake to spur you on to make the right choice when it comes to Christ. For us as believers... It shows us clearly the need for sovereign grace to turn a sinner's heart. God's grace of regeneration and the grace explained through the preached word are both needed. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The gospel must be preached. But faith is also a gift. This gives us great confidence to preach the gospel, knowing that all those whom God has chosen before the beginning of time 
will respond by his gracious enabling when they hear the gospel. However, it also helps us to be patient with sinners, doesn't it? Passages like this reveal what their hearts are like, what our hearts were like before the grace of God. Don't be discouraged if people do not respond. Our job is simply to preach, to preach, to preach, to pray, to pray, to preach, to preach, to pray, and to preach some more. And to trust the Holy Spirit to apply that truth, the good news of Jesus Christ, his person and his work, to apply that truth to people's hearts. So with that, let's get into the passage proper. And it begins with the compassionate return of Jesus to Nazareth. The correct attitude to sinners is exhibited before us in the life of Jesus as he comes to his hometown. So point one, a compassionate return. Verse one says this. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. At the end of chapter five, Jesus was in Capernaum. And now he returns to Nazareth to preach the gospel to those who supposedly knew him best because Nazareth was the town that Jesus grew up in. Earlier in Mark 3, 20, we were told, as I said, how Jesus uh, returned home sometime after choosing the 12 apostles. But the home that's being referred to there was Capernaum. That was home for Jesus during a large part of his earthly ministry. But in Mark chapter 6... When we're told that Jesus came to his hometown, it's speaking about Nazareth. In Mark chapter 1, we're introduced to John the Baptist who would prepare the way of the Lord. Then we read about the Lord's arrival in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. It's a comment about where Jesus was from. He came from Nazareth. That was his home town. Nazareth was a nothing town. It was some 40 kilometres southwest of Capernaum. It's not even mentioned at all in the Old Testament. Nazareth was where Mary and Joseph were from. That's Luke 1, verses 26 and 27. And while Jesus was born in Bethlehem in fulfilment of the messianic prophecies, Uh, His family moved back there after the death of King Herod the Great. Matthew 1 verse 23 says, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now this prophecy about being called a Nazarene seems to be a reference to the fact that Jesus would be despised, like what we read in Isaiah 53. He would be despised and rejected. Remember Nathaniel's comments about Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, that backwater town? So, for approximately 30 years, Nazareth was the home of the Son of God. Now in Mark 6, he returns there once more. Interestingly, Mark doesn't mention it, but it's actually the second time Jesus returned to Nazareth after beginning his public ministry the first return is right at the start of his public ministry and that's recorded in luke chapter 4 in that passage we read that 
Jesus stood up in the synagogue in Nazareth and he declared to those who'd known him the longest that he was the Messiah. He quotes from the scroll of Isaiah and about the one who was to come and he says, this is fulfilled today in me. But the people didn't respond very well to that. Is not this Joseph's son, they said. And then they took him out of town and tried to throw him down a cliff. But miraculously, and I don't mean that term loosely, I mean by an actual miracle, Jesus simply passed through the midst of the angry mob and escaped their clutches. And so here we are in Mark 6, almost a year after the events of Luke chapter 4. And Jesus has decided to come back to Nazareth once more, one final time. He's come here as an act of compassion. These were the people he grew up with. These are the people he knew and he loved, his family, his friends. And so because he loves them, he comes once more to preach. Sharing the good news of Jesus is the greatest expression of love. You see, if salvation is found only through faith in his name, then the greatest expression of love is to teach them about the gospel. Now, he doesn't come alone this time. This time he has his disciples following him, which certainly explains at the end of this passage why there was no need for a miracle to escape. The Nazarenes were not going to try and kill Jesus when his closest followers were surrounding him. It's a bit harder to do that. But the presence of his disciples shows that there have been others who have been convinced of the truth about Jesus Christ. Their presence with Jesus should cause the people of Nazareth to consider a moment whether there is more to Jesus than they've previously given him credit for. We think of that today. The fact that there are many, many followers of Jesus Christ throughout the world should give people pause to think there might be something to this Jesus. So we read that on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Here is Jesus' compassion. He's teaching them the truth of the gospel, the good news of God's saving reign, his kingdom, which is present in his own person and work. Now you might ask, how on earth is Jesus allowed in the Nazarene synagogue, given what went down the last time that he was there? Well, I think curiosity has a great deal to do with it. Remember that only shortly before returning to Nazareth for the second time, Jesus' own family had gone up to Capernaum, try and take him back. You think that was a secret in Nazareth about what his family was trying to do? Of course not. But on top of that, since the last time Jesus was in Nazareth, his popularity had become enormous. Uh, His name was known through all of Galilee. He was known for his powerful teaching. He was known for his mighty works. During Jesus' ministry, sickness and disease are almost halted in that region. It's utterly extraordinary. Just prior to returning, uh, he had healed the woman who touched his garments in the crowd at Capernaum. He then raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, although that wasn't made overly public. But from Matthew's account, we learn that a few other things had happened on the journey as well from Capernaum to Nazareth. At the end of Matthew 9, we're told that Jesus healed two blind men 
It's verses 27 to 31. And then Jesus cast out a demon that had caused a man to be mute. It's verses 32 to 34. So from this you begin to understand why the people might have allowed Jesus to step into the pulpit once more. Yet regardless of their reasons for doing so, let me reiterate once more from Jesus' part, it is an act of compassion. He's come to preach the gospel. He's come to teach them that God's saving reign is found in him and him alone. And here is the heart of Jesus. This brings us, brings great encouragement to our hearts as we think about the Lord's compassion, his mercy towards us and bringing us to faith in him, despite us being enemies. We're not deserving of his grace, but that's what makes grace, grace. Yet it also brings great conviction to our hearts as we think about our compassion toward others. How concerned are we for the people in our circles, our family, our friends who do not know the Lord? How compassionate are we in seeking to return to that conversation once more to speak about the gospel, to the conversations in which we were shut down or ridiculed seeking to speak about our faith? It's true that by the end of this passage, uh, we see Jesus moving on to other towns. We'll talk about that in a moment. Yet his initial action should cause us to stop and to think and consider how much compassion we've truly exhibited to others in seeking to share with them the good news of salvation found only in Christ. How hard have we really tried? And I'm asking this question of myself just as much as I put that to you to consider. So when Jesus comes back to Nazareth, it is a compassionate return. However, this compassion is not received well again. And that leads us to point two, where we see the people respond to Jesus by giving him a critical rating. They're just critics. Continuing in verse two, Mark tells us that many who heard him were astonished. The word astonished means to strike out of one's senses. They, they had their minds blown once more as they sat there watching and listening to the Lord. Utterly astounding. And the scripture tells us that Jesus caused that reaction on many people. For instance, when he entered, uh, first entered the synagogue in Capernaum, we read in Mark 1, that the people were astonished. They had their minds blown at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. There was something truly different about the Lord. Those in Nazareth, well, they had the same reaction when they sat before Jesus. They were utterly amazed. But notice that this amazement quickly turns sour. Their reaction to this amazement is not repentance of sin, not praise to God for what they've seen. No, instead they start critiquing Jesus. Instead of coming to a correct conclusion about the person and work of Jesus, their hardened hearts, their deep state of sin, causes them to focus instead on other aspects of Jesus. And it's an effort to disregard the importance of who Jesus is and what he's telling them. They begin looking for excuses not to believe. If we could break their critiques up to look at them in more detail, we might say the first three questions are critical of Jesus' power. So in the rest of verse 2, we're 
told that the people were saying, where did this man get these things? And what are these things being referred to? Well, they're fleshed out in the next two questions. When the people ask, what is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? So these things are Jesus' words and his works. And what we see is that they're left in no doubt over the power of Jesus' ministry. He teaches with authority and he validates that authority by mighty works. Mighty works confirm what he's saying. Of course, the source of this power is obvious, right? It's divine power that he wields. But the people are determined to ignore that answer. And we should note they haven't yet reached the point of the scribes and the Pharisees. Those leaders were committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit by actively attributing Christ's power to Satan. They hadn't reached that point. But nevertheless, the people in Nazareth, they are determined to speculate about Christ's power coming from some other source than God. And the reason they do this is so that they don't have to submit to what they're witnessing. And their reaction is not surprising. That's the same attitude Jesus' own family had. Let me just pause for a moment to help us understand a little more about the mighty works of Christ. In the Bible, we find three words that are commonly used to describe miracles. Miracles are spoken of as signs, wonders, and mighty works. As a sign, a miracle is not an end in itself. It points towards something. Uh, It leads people to see something of greater importance. It's a visual testimony. It's a confirmation. As a wonder, a miracle draws amazement from onlookers. And then as a mighty work, a miracle is a powerful action performed directly by God or, or by God through an authorized agent that supersedes his providential care of this world. It's something extraordinary, something clearly above his normal ways of sustaining the cosmos. And if we put all that together, we might define a miracle as this. You don't need to write this down. If you want this definition, you can come and see me after. But let me say this. A miracle is a mighty work performed directly by God or by him through an authorised agent that supersedes God's sustaining care of his creation in such a manner that it draws wonder from onlookers and serves as a clear and undeniable sign of God's immediate action. First miracle, of course, was the creation of the heavens and the earth out of nothing and in six 24-hour days. This is distinct from other miracles by the fact that Adam and Eve were the last part of God's creative activity But they were also created in a world in which there was no sin. So there was no denying what had taken place. That's different for every other human. For we've all been born after the fall. We're born with a sinful nature. And moreover, creation took place a long, long time ago. Approximately 6,000 years ago, to be more precise. can't say that a bit tongue-in-cheek. 6,000 years, that's a long, long time. Now... On the seventh day, we read in Genesis 2 that God rested uh, from his work. But we should understand this rest as referring to his creative work. He completed creation. 
But he has never rested from sustaining his creation. And this sustaining of his creation, his constant care of his work, is what we refer to theologically as providence. And we talked a little bit about this last week. And we'll talk a little bit more about it next week when we look at uh, the miracles of the apostles. So providence is God's preservation of his creation, his guiding of creation, and his governance over creation as he leads history to the fulfillment of his sovereign purposes. God is always working in this world. He's not made the world, wound it up like a clock and then left it to its own devices. No, while God transcends his creation, he towers above it, he is nonetheless imminent within his creation and that is providence. But there are times when he miraculously intervenes in extraordinary ways. In the Old Testament, we find this in two main periods. So there, are the, there are some other miracles we find outside of these moments, but most are allotted to the time of Moses and Joshua and at the time of Elijah and Elisha. And at the end of the Old Testament, there's this 400-year gap of absolutely nothing. And then comes Jesus. All the miracles in the Old Testament demonstrated God's sovereign power. And so when Jesus comes along and he performs more mighty works in three years than there were in the history of the world to that point, they are a definite sign that Jesus was from God and moreover that Jesus was and is God the Son. After Jesus, we see the apostles as well as a few apostolic associates performing miracles. But even in the second half of the first century, we begin to see miracles receding. For instance... In his final letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4 verse 20 that before he was arrested, he had left his friend Trophimus in the town of Miletus. And he did so while Trophimus was still ill. He left him still sick. But earlier, this same Paul, we are told in Acts chapter 20, had raised Eutychus from the dead after the young man fell out of a third story window. This reminds us that miracles were never the norm. God demonstrated his power vividly at certain times for a distinct reason. Remember, they were signs, right? They were visual testimonies. And as signs, miracles validated the messenger and the message. Now that we have the sufficient word of God, now that we have the Bible, which is able to make believers complete, equipped for every good work we do not need any further miraculous validation from god we have all the validated revelation in the sufficient word of scripture but while we need not await any more divine miracles aside of course from the glorious miracle of regeneration in sinners hearts nevertheless god is still at work in his creation every single second of every single day by his providence his constant care and sustaining of this world. And we should praise him for his constant care and provision. We should give him all praise. In the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, however, miracles were consistently being performed. They were a clear testimony to his divine power. And yet here we have the people of Nazareth fully aware of this, but still trying to come up with some other source for his power. 
Instead of submission to Christ, there is rejection. And so they're critical of Jesus' power. But then in verse 3, there are two further questions. Questions in which they are critical of Jesus' personhood. Verse 3, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? This can't be the Messiah because he's just the carpenter. This is the guy that built my kitchen table. How could he possibly be the Messiah? According to Matthew 13, 55, the people also say, is not this the carpenter's son? They know Jesus simply as another worker in Nazareth. The word translated as carpenter has a broader range than simply someone who works with wood. It means builder or craftsman. So Jesus may have also been skilled in working with stone as well. And his stepfather, Joseph, uh, would have been the one to train him. But these comments by the people, it's a double slight against Jesus, right? He's just a carpenter. And they also know that he has no formal theological training. Who is this guy? We know him. Who does he think he is? And you can see they're just trying to find whatever they can to justify dismissing him. That is not rational. The fact that some refer to Jesus as the son of Mary is probably another slight against those rumours surrounding Jesus' birth, that Joseph was not his biological father. The comments are certainly hitting a a low point. And while the people are trying to dismiss Jesus by their words, I want you to note that their words also enable us to dismiss two false teachings that have spread in different circles uh, within the church for many years. Firstly, the Catholic Church falsely teaches the perpetual virginity of Mary and that she never had any children after giving birth to Jesus. Um, The current catechism of the Catholic Church states this and I quote, the deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity even in the act of giving birth to the son of God made man, end quote. But that teaching is clearly incorrect And it goes towards all of the elevation of Mary that's unbiblical. We should certainly hold Mary in high esteem for her faith and her godliness, but not more than what scriptures attest. Uh, Because in this instance, while Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus, that being done by the power of the Holy Spirit, after that, however, Mary and Joseph conceived other children in the usual fashion. Four boys and at least two girls. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, the apostles are joined for prayer in the upper room by several others, including, we're told, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Of his brothers, we specifically know that James, he became the leader of the Jerusalem church and uh, wrote the epistle that bears his name, while Judas uh, wrote the epistle of Jude. Prior to Jesus' death, however, his family, with the probable exception of Mary, his mother, well, they all thought he was out of his mind, as we've said. And if they didn't believe him, why would those who also grew up with him? So this passage only makes sense when we affirm that Mary did conceive other children in the normal fashion after the miraculous conception of Jesus. The second thing this verse allows us to dismiss are those false teachings found in the late 
first century writings, the Gnostic writings, um, that say Jesus performed extraordinary feats as a child. You may have heard of some of these, like Jesus breathing life into birds fashioned from clay or stretching a beam of wood to help Joseph finish building a bed uh, or raising children back from the dead. Clearly none of this happened. Uh, The people knew Jesus growing up and he had a normal childhood. And here we see the true humanity of Jesus. Now, of course, growing up, Jesus would have stood out in the sense of his obedience. He was the only child they ever met who would never have been in trouble. Never. In fact, he was perfectly holy. Yet they don't seem to remember that aspect. And what comes across in all this is the fact that Jesus' life in Nazareth did not contain any miraculous deeds that made him stand out as a son of God. No, the rest of the people, he was simply Jesus the carpenter. And this was the reason why they took offence at him as he stood before them that day. In verse 4, Jesus responded to them saying, A prophet is not without honour except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. It's the same thing that he said to them when he stood in that very synagogue about a year earlier. We read that in Luke 4. In fact, it's what tipped them over the edge and caused them to try and throw him over the cliff. Jesus' words are essentially the the same meaning as another well-known saying, familiarity breeds contempt. They were so familiar with Jesus. He was a Nazarene just like themselves and there was no way they were going to allow one of their own to start lecturing them on the truth of God. We're all born with a sinful nature, born blind to the things of God. This is what we refer to as total depravity. It means we have the capacity of exercising our wills, but our wills have been corrupted by sin such that we do not desire God. We're never going to choose God in and of our own selves. Every single person then is in need of a sovereignly granted new birth from above. We're all in need of God's grace to regenerate our minds and our hearts and our wills, that we might be freed from the bondage of sin and come into the service of the King of Kings. But while everyone is in that position, everyone in need of a new birth, nevertheless, there are some who have so hardened their hearts that the very mention of the truth is rejected like the seed that's sown on the hard soil and cannot penetrate the surface. Look, I'm sure you've witnessed times when people have have their minds so set against another person that nothing that person says is received. Nothing. Even if that's something that person says is positive. They've just determined not to hear anything. And so they can't hear anything. Well, for the people of Nazareth, they'd done just that. Many had no doubt grown up with Jesus, but instead of uh, thinking back to the holiness exhibited by him throughout his younger years, instead of carefully considering the teaching he was presenting to them at that moment, as well as the miraculous deeds that are going around town or the region, they used their familiarity as an excuse for rebellion. Jesus was extraordinarily merciful in coming back to Nazareth to share the gospel one more time. And yet they gave him a critical rating once more. 
Sometimes the hardest people to evangelise are those who've been closest to the truth. Sure, you've met people who attend churches but exhibit an unwillingness to submit to what the Word of God says. Sure, you've met people who've grown up in the church but at some point they've walked away. And the fact that these people think they know about the faith makes it that much harder in speaking to them. Just in the last week or so, a high-profile pastor in the US uh, declared that he'd left the Christian faith. He was so close to the truth, but rejected it, publicly rejected it. Of course, we recognise that his falling away was not a falling out of the faith, because the elect will never fall away. To those in whom God has begun a good work, God will bring it to completion. Yet we should feel great sadness great sadness for those who've so hardened themselves if that's you and you're listening to this today may god be merciful in drawing you properly into christ's fold may he soften your hearts to the truth of christ and for us as believers may the lord grant us fervency in our prayers for ones such as this so here is the critical rating received by Jesus. In the final two verses of this passage, we see the crushing result. Christ withholds the miraculous displays of power and he leaves in order to proclaim the gospel to others who might listen. These few words represent a terrible indictment upon the people of Nazareth and it's a warning for all, all of us reading this. So verses 5 to 6, we see a crushing result. Verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, some suggest that this statement by Mark means that Jesus' ability to do miracles was tied to the level of people's faith. That somehow Jesus was not capable of performing miracles in Nazareth because the people didn't have enough faith. This is what we find in the thinking of those pushing the health and wealth gospel, which is really no gospel at all. But in these camps, people are told that to seek their healing from God, they must have absolute faith. And if they aren't healed, it's because their lack of faith meant that Jesus could not release his power upon them. So you need to go back and have more faith. Now, not only is that discredited by the fact that many times in Jesus' ministry he healed those who didn't even exhibit faith. Moreover, the second part of this verse completely wipes that idea out. You see, unless we think that Jesus healing sick people was not a miracle, then the text clearly states that Jesus did in fact perform some miracles in Nazareth. And this is also affirmed by what Matthew says in his account of the event. Matthew 13, verse 58, it says of Jesus... And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And from this, we understand that at least a few mighty works were performed in Nazareth because not many mighty works means at least some mighty works were done. But what sets Nazareth apart from other places that Jesus had performed miracles was their hostile unbelief. People of Nazareth were already aware of the miracles that Jesus had been doing throughout the region of Galilee. Again, Jesus' growing popularity and his power 
was no doubt why they invited him to speak once more in their synagogue. And yet when he comes to them, they look at him with contempt, offended that someone who grew up in their neighbourhood could dare lecture them about matters of faith. And in doing so, they reveal the hardness of their hearts. What's the purpose of miracles? Miracles were performed to validate the messenger and his message. Well, the people of Nazareth already knew of these miracles, and yet they rejected the messenger and his message. So when Mark tells us that Jesus could do no mighty work there, it's not referring to Jesus' ability, but rather to Jesus' morality. We are to understand could not as chose not, could not as would not. Jesus is not a circus performer. In the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us not to give our pearls to pigs. And here in Nazareth, he puts that teaching into practice. They'd already heard about and seen the truth of the gospel. They'd already heard about and seen the miraculous validation of the gospel. And yet they chose to reject Jesus. So Jesus chose to refrain from doing anything further in their midst. Miracles testified to the truth, but the people of Nazareth rejected that truth. And so Jesus determined there was no reason to do any further miracles in that place. You know, that's profoundly different to the situation of a believer calling upon the Lord for healing. Profoundly different. Because in Nazareth, it wasn't an instant of a believer struggling with their circumstances, struggling to call out to the Lord. What we find in Nazareth are unbelievers refusing to submit to the Lord. There is no similarity at all. And you know, in another way, we should also understand Jesus' refusal to perform many miracles in Nazareth actually as an act of mercy. In Matthew 11, we read the words that Jesus declared to the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida. He says this in verses 21 to 22. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. In the next verse, he also declares the same thing to Capernaum, where he did a huge amount of miracles. Christ's judgment here in Matthew 11 gives us insight into his actions in Nazareth. At their rejection, he stopped performing miracles because the truth is that if he kept on doing miraculous signs and the people continued to reject him, it would simply make them more culpable for their lack of belief and would lead to a greater experience of hell in eternity. Now, this is no argument at all for withholding preaching the gospel to people so that people won't be damned because they didn't know. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short. All are already under condemnation. The only escape is faith in Christ. What we realise is that hell is for hell is hell for everyone who does not believe. But this passage shows that hell will be hotter still for some. Well, the passage finishes in verse six with some truly, inc- truly incredible uh, words. Mark writes, "And he marvelled because of their unbelief." 
Marvel. Jesus was truly amazed. He stood in absolute wonder at the hardness of their hearts. There are two moments in Jesus' ministry where he marveled at someone's reaction. In Luke 7, a few months earlier, while ministering in Capernaum, he encountered a centurion who asked Jesus to heal his servant. So Luke 7 verse 9 says, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. He marveled at the centurion's faith. That's amazing. Jesus' amazement in that instant was a moment of joy, but it's just the opposite in Nazareth. And here we have another comment affirming Jesus' humanity. Yes, Jesus is truly God, and in his divine nature, he knew the hearts of men. He knew the utter sinfulness of sin. However, with the incarnation, Jesus also became truly man. And from that moment, he would ever be one person with two natures. But the reaction towards the people's extraordinary unbelief stems from Jesus' human nature. It leaves him completely staggered. And that is a truly crushing conclusion. And it's crushing because for people not to believe upon Jesus as Lord and Saviour is utterly amazing. When you read the pages of Scripture, you are left in no doubt as to the person and power of Jesus Christ. He alone could be the Saviour of the world. He alone. And yet, tragically, many do ignore this truth. Enter by the narrow gate, says Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. The people of Nazareth knew Jesus the carpenter, but their sinful hearts kept them from knowing that Jesus the carpenter was indeed the Son of God. And it reminds us of the power of unbelief. It makes us ever dependent on the grace and mercy of the Saviour to bring about the inward miracle of regeneration in conjunction with hearing the word so that that word may be truly heard. But did Jesus in his encounter in Nazareth stop him from proclaiming the gospel? Not at all. The end of verse 6 tells us, And he went about among the villages teaching. He made sure he had presented the gospel clearly to those in Nazareth. But once they rejected it, he moved on. You know, we see the same thing in the book of Acts, particularly with the Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys. He went into the synagogues, preached, and when he was rejected, he moved out and started speaking to everyone else. Here too is our response. We have to be sure the gospel has been clearly presented. That's our job. And if the gospel is not received, we look for opportunities to share the word of truth. For other opportunities. And there are plenty of them. Of course, we keep praying for those who don't believe. Of course, we do that. And we should be diligent in that. And we keep praying that God would grant us an opportunity to speak into their lives. But when the gospel is rejected, we do not lose heart. And like Jesus, we just start speaking to the next person. We go to the next village as it were. Don't lose heart, but have confidence. Confidence not in your own ability, but in the power of God. 
knowing that through the gospel, God has promised to save his people and our God is mighty to save. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are humbled today as we recognise the power of unbelief. We are humbled because as we think back to the mercy that you have displayed to us, your grace at work in our lives enabling us to come to Christ. Because without your grace at work, we too would be trapped in our unbelief and our sin and still be under your wrath. Father, we pray that you would help us to be faithful and diligent in preaching the gospel to those around us. Help us to be prayerful. Uh, Help us to be diligent in that. Help us to have compassionate hearts for the lost, knowing that that was where we were too, but by your grace. Father, we, we, we pray that you would bring to mind those people in our lives Grow our hearts for them. Help us to seek opportunities to speak the word of truth about Christ. But Father, if there is rejection, we pray that you would help us to have confidence in the gospel and in your grace and in your power. Help us to not be discouraged, but be prayerful and go about all of our days ready to give an answer to the hope that we have ready to teach the truth about Christ, who is the Saviour, the only Saviour of this world. In our Lord's name we pray. Amen.